If green is your favorite color or your way of living, then Grounded is the place for you. From big environmental solutions to your own backyard, wherever in the universe you may be, join me, Melanie Walker, on a journey to a cleaner, greener life. Grounded, your window on the environment. And a very warm welcome to Grounded, the place where you can find out about everything to do with the green world, whether it be your garden or, of course, the environment. You know, when it comes to the environment, and we're talking about environmental issues which are just bigger than your own backyard, but that's where you start, obviously, we always think about, especially here in South Africa, the amount of wonderful indigenous trees we have, about our grasslands, about all of our wonderful floristic biomes. And one of the things that we really, well, for, I don't know about you, but for me, I covet is going out and buying all the best books to do with the environment about your gardening. And there's so many, fortunately, in this country, which are relatable to what happens in South Africa. Because before, I think a lot of the time, it was a case of getting books that related to Europe uh, or to Australia. And yes, they were great from a design point of view. But it didn't really tell us about what we had going or what we could use at home. So I was quite happy during the lockdown period to find out that Strake, one of the publishers here in South Africa, had decided to put forward a series of um, nature club talks where they talked about not just trees and actual nature itself, but also about various biomes. Um, fascinating talks about um, the Mkhalisberg area. But the first one I managed to get into, and the reason I'm sure that everybody will go, oh, I have to go and join that one, was if trees could talk. And I've always wondered what they would say. Well, somebody who's had a lot more to do with trees than I have, especially when it comes to indigenous trees, and probably can understand everything they're saying, is Megan Parker. And uh, she's brought out a number of books which she's going to tell us about, as well as her travels through the nature world. Thanks for joining us. It's wonderful to be here, Melanie. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first of all, I mean, sitting and chatting here, ex-5050 producer. Now, we all remember those, those TV shows, okay? <laughs> so what, how long were you with 5050 for? Um, just over eight years I was working on the show, yeah. Okay, and, and what got you into that? What did you study to be to begin with? It was kind of a, an accident, really. Um, I studied conservation um, straight out of school um, with big ambitions to go and save the natural world and just kind of landed in media by mistake. I, since I was a, a, a young child, I wanted to be in wildlife documentaries and that idyllic world, I suppose, that we used to see on Fifty Fifty when we were kids mm. of researchers going and living amongst animals and, you know, following a herd of elephants and living in a tent next to a beautiful stream. And that's what I wanted for my life. Um, I was a little disappointed when I first encountered the, the real world of media to discover that very few people ever get to live a life like that. But I'd kind of pursued a, a little bit of video stuff before going off to go and, and do some game ranging and then bumped into some more video sort of experiences along the way. And um, I had been on this particular occasion, it was, it was probably a good 10 years into my career, I'd been training field guides in the Maasai Mara in Kenya and literally just... <laughs> <laughs> Just came back to South Africa to an email that was waiting from uh, Clive Morris Productions, who at the time producing 5050, to say that the old team had had disbanded and they were pulling together a new team. And was I interested? He 
uh, Clive could see that I had both the wildlife and a bit of media experience mm. and, and was I keen to climb on board. And having had all those childhood experiences of 50-50 and being so inspired by it, I was absolutely sign me up. And again, a very different program in, in this day and age, um, but a wonderful challenge uh, to, to showcase the diversity of um, conservation and environmental topics in the country, as well as community and people issues mm. relating to environment and, and conservation. And, and there I stayed for eight years until, um, yeah, so the last couple of years I was senior producer and just running the production and the content side of the show. Yeah, I think we, we have that very firmly entrenched in our psyche, watching Fifty Fifty with Liz Dick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how many people... Well, I know the youth probably don't really know it all that well, but it was one of those things. Sunday night, it was something that you watched. Okay. Now, you got into so many books, and I know that your first book that you put out was actually not through Strake. It was through? Breezer. Breezer. Publications. And that was Game Ranger in your backpack, which, I mean, you've still got it selling. They're still republishing. How long has it actually been out in print? Um, it came out for the first time in 2010, and it's reprinted every year since. It's a very, very popular publication, um, which I'm thrilled about. And just as a bit of background, those training days back in Kenya, before that I had been training guides in South Africa, mm. and that's really where the idea for Game Ranger in Your Backpack came from because the students that were learning, I'd say to them, go and find three interesting things about an impala and they'd come back and tell me that the males had horns and the females didn't and this is how much they weighed and this is how long the gestation was and it was just boring mm. and to to try and help just young naturalists that were learning about the bush to find those interesting things I was like I'll just write it out for you I'll just put everything into little interpretive packages mm. and so we assembled this book with heaps of photographs in a mind map format um, mammals and birds and insects and reptiles and all of that. Um, so you literally, whether you were learning about the bush and all the things you needed to know about the bush or whether you were just going to the bush and you wish you could have a guide with you. Mm. So the kinds of things that a guide would tell you, all of those are, are captured in very digestible little packages in this Game Ranger in your backpack. And I think it's it's because of that, because it, it really is like taking your own private sort of game ranger tutor with you into the bush it's proved incredibly successful and a good sort of reseller well i mean it's the title that gets me i'm just sitting here imagining having this little person sitting in my backpack like a leprechaun and telling me what to do but then i do have one of those weird kind of minds but that that's also i mean if trees could talk i know now that that is not being published under that name anymore it's now 100 bushveld trees also being brought out by strake um, what was the, the whole thing about If Trees Could Talk and why has it changed? The title first came out under If Trees Could Talk. I have a, an absolute passion for teaching um, people, whether they are naturalists or just people that are interested in the bush, about the bush. I'm not in any way, shape or form an expert, but I'm an enthusiast and an enthusiast with a lot of experience and, and sort of qualifications behind me. And I love to take the bush knowledge and to dumb it down and to, to help just normal people learn more about mm. the bush. And trees in particular are difficult. It, it's the stumbling block even for people that are learning, you know, professionally about the bush to get their heads around. But I I found once you, you've learned a little bit, it's easy. You, mm. you know, once you know one tree, learning a second tree is easy. Once you've learned five trees, learning 10 trees is easy. And, and so it grows. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to take 
a tree book and do something that nobody had done before. A little bit like a recipe book, like some of Jane's delicious garden books, that kind of thing. And to tell stories. I mean, she's, she's always mentioning, you know, my grandmother taught me this or, you know, I learned this along the way. And I wanted to do that about my journey with trees because I find if I think back over my memories of my times in the bush, there's always a tree in the background. I can remember a particular sighting or a particular thing that happened in relation to a tree that might have been there at the time. And it just adds such a lovely dimension to your experience of the mm. bush. So, so I wanted to do that. So I, I wrote for every tree, I tried to think back. If I had to think about this tree, what would the story be that jumps to mind? And so I worked with um, photographer Shem Kampion. He's one of the top wildlife photographers in South Africa, incredibly creative. And we did a lot of stylized photography just to make it fun, just so it's not just a tree standing in an environment, and did some fun photography, and then we did these stories, and the idea was to try and bring each of the trees alive. And that was that was originally published under Takana mm. Publications and did exceptionally well and then went out of print. And um, Strake picked up the title and loved the idea of doing a, a simplified book on trees um, and then because it was a new publisher, we brought it out under a new title called 100 Bushveld Trees. But the principle of the book is the same in that it's it's written in English, not in botanese. <laughs> Thank goodness, yes, because that's one of the things that really get people. Although it's nice to have the botanese too. It It is, and there is some botanese, but it's it's dumbed down botanese in the sense that it's the kind of stuff you need to know, but you don't have to use words like lanceolate or whatever to describe the shape of a leaf. They're know? kind of like, they look like a lance. There you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're strap-like. <laughs> um, and we used a lot of color photography to show the different parts of the plant, so the bark, the fruit, the flowers, which in and of itself is a challenge because obviously they don't have leaves and fruit and flowers at the same time necessarily. So, so there was a lot of work involved there. And then just also, if you don't want to look at the photos or read the simplified sort of descriptions, just to have that Meg's quick ID, which is is the sort of top five or six things that you can look at on the tree to determine at a quick glance whether it is in fact what you're looking at. So the most obvious features. Um, and yes, that, that's that's true of both versions of the book. Well, it's, it's very interesting that people, I mean, the moment they, they hear you're either a nature person or if you're a gardening person, they will send you pictures of 45 million different things saying, what is this? And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm not actually a botanist, <laughs> but I can see if I can help you. And most of my stuff goes off to Andrew Hankey. I'm like, Andrew, what is this? Because <laughs> I don't know. Um, we work with a specific palette in a garden specifically. I mean, and when you walk down and you're looking at things and thinking, I haven't a clue because we're in Natal and I don't know. But fortunately, I did have a father who went and did a course on trees, indigenous trees. And he went and put all the little plaques up in the Umtumvuno uh, wow. forest and, wow. and the river gorge. So you, you get to know bits and pieces, but do you have that people think that you're a complete expert? Absolutely. I need to get Andrew's number from you <laughs> because it's, it's exactly that. I, I, my experience is with bushveld trees. I know quite a few trees outside of the bushveld, but not every tree in the country. I mean, they, there's over a thousand of them, you know. Mm. And um, and certainly not all the, the garden trees. And I, I get my mom's friend sending me these sort of out of focus photos of half a leaf saying, yeah. what tree is this? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's crazy how people do that. So yeah. this book is actually the way it's set out though. I really, really like it because it's not like, I find sometimes books get a little bit too cluttered. 
And these pictures, the way that they've been set out with the picture of the tree or the shrub in its natural environment, a big picture, then a close-up of the bark, close-up of any spines that it may have, of its branches, flowers, and fruits. So you, and on down the side, and it's, you can just open it immediately and see it. My problem, of course, is always trying to find out what is the starting point. <laughs> yes, and, and interestingly, um, 100 bushveld trees has quite a, a simplified version of that. Mm. Um, again, because the keys are always so complicated to use, and there's so many different options, I, in this book, took a scoop of the 100 most common bushveld trees and went if I was looking at this from a complete layman's perspective, where would I start? Mm. And I've grouped them broadly into to six categories. So things like the giants, those trees that just get epically huge, you know, things like baobabs and jackalberries. And if you're driving along a river in the Kruger Park and there's a big tree, you can look under the giants and mm. it's going to give you more of a perspective. And then the compound leaves versus simple leaves, because that's an easy one to be able to, yeah. to separate out. Um, things that are definitely different, like the euphorbias or the cabbage trees, they've got a very distinct shape. Um, and then shrubby plants, that kind of thing. So just broadly grouping things into, as I said, very layman groups. And then I use a, I call it an acronym, but it's not actually an acronym. That's not the technical English term, but a little memory thing that you can a apply mnemonic. to. Yeah, a mnemonic. That's Nem- it. Mnemonic. I can never say it because of the double M's. I think it's a mnemonic. <laughs> yeah. We'll get there. Somebody let us know how to pronounce like it properly. <laughs> <laughs> um, Samson bee fish. And if you can just take your little imaginary tree identification assistant, Samson bee fish, with you when you go out there and work through what each of those letters means. It's a, it's a nice, simple way of being able to figure out, even in a more complicated tree book, what you're looking at. So the Samson refers to all the things that you would look at on leaves, for mm-hmm. example. So is it simple or compound? What is the arrangement? What is the margin? Those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And then the B stands for bark. So specifically looking at the bark to see what is outstanding there. And the fish part refers to the other parts of the plant, so fruit and flowers or the impression, so the size or the the general impression you get. Does it have spines and thorns? And then, of course, habitat and distribution where Mm. it's growing. So that mnemonic and the groupings are a very simplified way to try and help people navigate this world of trees. So have you actually had trees talk to you? Uh, <laughs> they do. They do. They talk to each other. I mean, we all know that. And people just look at you as if you're completely crazy a lot of the time. But it is true. It absolutely is. And I think they speak to giraffe too. Oh, the, you're the acacias. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Sorry, not acacias. Vectilias. Vectilias <laughs> and senegalias. Yeah. yeah. But um, I think in the sense that they, the trees take my breath away. They are fascinating. Mm. I think uh, I'm also very into birds. I love birds. And I think it's a similar thing. Just the, the tiny details on a bird, the colors of the feathers, the different bills, the different flight patterns, the different feet, where they live, how they build their nests. There's, there's so much intricacy to a world that's often overlooked. Mm. And it's the same with trees. There's just different textures and different smells and just a different feeling when you stand under different trees and all of those things kind of speak to me and I always say in the talks that I give that if trees could talk they would tell us that they're underappreciated that if you think about it trees are always in the background they're always there they give us oxygen to breathe they 
give us fruit and food to eat. Our children play in them. You know, we've all played in trees when we've been growing up. You can lie on a blanket under them on a hot day or in a hammock. They're so integral to our lives and they're integral to ecology, of course, Mm. as well, and all the different things that rely on them for food and nesting sites and all of that kind of thing. And yet we're so quick to just, you know, take a bulldozer and lay them flat and put up a shopping, you know, what's it, paved paradise and put up a parking lot, you know, that kind of gig. Um, Big yellow taxi. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And and I just think, you know, with global warming and, you know, not to sound like an environmental activist, but but trees are underappreciated and yet they can add such a dimension to your experience of wildlife places. As I mentioned earlier, they're so integral to my earliest memories. And I'll give you an example. So I have a photo of me just sitting with my back against a, a jacket plum in the Makuleki region of the Kruger Park. And it gets to sometimes 47 degrees there in the summer. Um, So you go out very early in the morning if you're going to go walking. And it was at a time where I was training guides and we went out for our morning walk. And on the way back to camp in this horrific heat, we came across a herd of buffalo. Mm. And this picture, just one of the students snapped it. And it's just me leaning against the tree with the buffalo in the middle distance. It's It's not a great photo, but it always just reminds me of how if that tree hadn't been there, we wouldn't have had that experience because we were able to climb into the shade of the tree. It was on a termite mound. So we climbed up. We had a relative shelter from the herd of buffalo and we were safe there. And also we could sit in the shade and watch them, which we wouldn't have been able to do if there had been no shade. Absolutely. And the buffalo were totally unaware of us. So we watched them for close on an hour. They moved into the open area they were utterly undisturbed. They made their noises. They made their smells. We we had a, an absolute window into the, this world of buffalo. And then they moved off and we could move on. And it just, to me, the hero in that story is the tree that we were sitting underneath and, and is so much a part of my memory of that particular encounter. And I just think if we opened our eyes a little bit more, there'd be so much more of that, of our experience in the bush. Absolutely. I mean, i done some amazing walks with some amazing people and in those days you, you, you go with people and all they want to do is see the animals it's like if you go scuba diving everybody wants to see the sharks whereas I'm the one who's hanging out in the reef looking for nudibranchs so for me it's also about I wish I'd known say 30 years ago what I know now because I'd have been a lot more appreciative of the trees but I'd be very interested to know if you know where the furthest south baobab tree in the world is okay wow uh, further <laughs> south is it in someone's garden by any chance it's in a garden and a farm okay then I mean I, I would have guessed that it was in a garden but I don't know where it is exactly <laughs> it was a very interesting thing when uh, they did the sod turning and they started building the lost city you know at Sun City and Mr. Kersner the late Mr. Kersner was like really so excited about the fact he brought in these baobabs and they're going to be the furthest south baobabs in the world and I said no sorry there's one at the farm called Ellingham down in KZN okay, the wow. south coast yeah so just as another piece of useless information but baobabs I mean people are also fascinated with them what amazes me though is that they now have made them available for you to be able to buy them from a nursery or a garden centre and I'm sitting there and thinking, sure, you can plant a baobab in your garden. Have you seen how big they get? <laughs> and I'm thinking, not a good plant for a small garden. Perhaps not, but I don't think the tree will get to a, a sizable size in your lifetime. So you're probably okay for your lifetime. It's it's the subsequent generations that move in that are going to have a problem. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Going to uproot your foundations. 
Absolutely. I mean, just, well, make your baobab into a house. I think that would be the way to go. So which for you are the, I mean, obviously you're talking about the bushveld in this book. How many books have you actually written apart from redoing 100 bushveld trees with If Trees Could Talk, Game Ranger in your backpack? There's a, another one, Nature Unpacked, which is the most recent one, which is very similar to Game Ranger. It's just for Southern Africa rather than just the Kruger area. Mm-hmm. And then I did a children's series called The Big Five and Other Animals, which comes in a box set of 10 with awareness publications. Okay, so you're a bushveld girl. Are there any other areas which you find particularly fascinating in South Africa? I find South Africa fascinating. I think we are so lucky to live in this country. We have so much diversity here. It's just every time I have the privilege of going on holiday to the Eastern Cape and we drive from Johannesburg right across the country through the Karoo, I just am blown away at how beautiful our country is. I love going to the Cape and the Feinbos and the mountains and going and walking in just in September, October when everything's flowering and it's mm. just magnificent. Love it. I studied in George, so I have a, a particular fondness for for the garden route and for the the Feinbos and the forests in that area. But just generally, I mean, it's so hard to pick an area. I love the Kalahari, um, that dry bushveld. It Mm. just absolutely floats my boat. So, yeah, I mean, I I suppose as a naturalist, I I just have an appreciation for for natural habitats. I love the ocean. I love to dive. I love to go and look for nudibranchs and (laughs) all of that stuff. So, yeah, no, just wherever you are, you know, if you're in the Drakensberg, just to have your breath taken away by those mountains and to appreciate what's around you. And if you're in the Cape, to appreciate what's around. It's just wherever you are, look around you and see what you've got and just love it. I, that, yeah, that just is me. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, funnily enough, I'm not a big bushveld person. I do go into the bushveld every now and then, but I think I'd rather go into forests. I'm very much, okay. love, I love trees that much. And, and it's a, a really interesting thing that people find that they actually don't differentiate between bushveld and the grasslands, which are completely different in their biodiversity with the trees that you find in them. And I mean, of course, Johannesburg, we are in a grassland. Yes. Does, yes. It, does it get like a little bit, you look at Johannesburg sometimes and just think, this is so weird that we have a forest which has just, you know, been created and where we only have like a handful of actual trees that should be in the area. Absolutely. I mean, it it is a man-made jungle, as they say, the biggest man-made jungle in the world, I think. And uh, the seventh. The seventh. The seventh biggest. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Stand corrected. But yeah, I often try and, and imagine in my mind if we could go back a hundred years and be standing maybe even longer before the gold rush and mm. be standing on this plateau um, that is Gauteng and looking around us, what we would have seen. I mean, herds of black wildebeest and, you know, hartebeest and things like that, all the grassland species and, and zebra and that kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, there's been so much sort of alien invasion as far as trees are concerned in the high fault and, and habitat conversion. But I mean, your original sort of question, I think, was uh, was around the grasslands versus the savannas. Mm-hmm. And uh, my husband's an ecologist, and he's probably the person that's most equipped to answer this question correctly. Because I mean, even bushveld, um, there's a technical area that's considered bushveld, and other areas are, are considered savannas or open savannas or closed savannas or wooded savannas. 
I mean, I've used the term very loosely, meaning areas that have got grass and trees. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's seven different biomes in the country and, and grassland, pure grassland is one of them. And savanna being trees and grass with a wooded component is another. So, yeah, I mean, again, it, it just it talks to the diversity in this country. Um, and then even within those categories, as I've said, there's different components and different types. So, yeah, one would need an ecologist to shed some light on, on mm. the intricacies there. But I think there is a fascination with trees. If you think about how many books in this country have been brought out about trees, I mean, what's, there's that one about the remarkable trees. Yes, um, and, and I mean, there's that wonderful big tree done in Hog's Back, which has got the chapel inside it. I mean, of course, the bear bab with a pub in it. I mean, there's so many remarkable trees in our country. Are you going to be bringing out, I know you, as I said, your Bushveld. Why aren't you bringing out a book about the other trees in other areas? I suppose it all boils down to, to where you spend most of your time. And most of my time has been spent in, in the Bushveld. I, I would love to do a forest book and, you know, just different trees in different areas. But your publishing books is, is really a sideline thing also. So it, it all depends on where your day job is and, and what's paying the bills. Um, and what is paying the bills? Because we know, you know, we, we're going to ignore the whole thing about publish or perish because we know there's no money to be made in publishing, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, at the moment, I'm working as a video content producer for Transformational Travel Company and Beyond, which is, is super fun. And with lockdown having just played itself out, I, I joined and beyond two weeks before lockdown. Um, and it was quite fortuitous, I think, because obviously the only way that they could communicate with their international clientele was through social media and electronic mailings and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, and so being able to produce some video content to kind of talk into what the people on the ground at the various lodges were doing and the conservation initiatives that had to carry on even though there were no tourists, all that kind of thing. Um, we were doing a lot of video production into all of that. So, so that's what keeps me busy at the moment. And often when I do get to travel, it's to the bushveld areas, places like Pindo or, or to the Lowveld. So, yeah, so it, it just it really does all boil down to, to what you're doing at any given time. Mm. Where is the one place that you would say to people before they die, they must visit it if they haven't? Oh, the Makuleki region of Kruger. So that 20,000 hectare, I think it's a contractual park now, Mm. the Pafuri region, it used to be known as, on the border with the Limpopo, between the Limpopo and the Levuvu rivers. Mm. It was land claimed and returned to the Makuleki people who were originally moved off the land when Kruger was first established. And Kruger now manages the park on behalf of the Makuleki people. Um, but what people don't realize, because the main road runs through a section of Mapani, very monochrome, monotone Mapani, is that there's actually a whole biodiverse playground in the background there. And there's actually 20, sorry, 75% of the whole Kruger Park's biodiversity exists in that 20,000. Are you serious? Yeah. 20,000 hectare concessions. So there's lala palm forests, there's riverine forests, there's fever tree forests, there's floodplains. There's just, it is so unbelievably diverse. And just a different, you know, a different habitat with these huge, massive nyala trees or mashatu trees all over the show with lazy nyalas grazing underneath them. And it's just spectacular. And my favorite part of the park. And as I mentioned earlier, it gets to 47 degrees with 80% humidity in the summertime. It's not 
pleasant, but if you've got an aircon in your car or you can go and stay at one of the beautiful lodges up there, mm. it's really worth it to, to go and explore that part of Kruger. It's, it's in, insanely special. One thing I've found with a lot of the lodges these days um, is that they've actually created tree walks and they've got people to come and plant them. So it's mainly a lot of the time for kids. And you walk along it, and it's like usually a little two-kilometer walk, and you walk past it, and you'll see all the information about each tree and how to tell them different. I think all lodges should do that because we should get everybody going for the big five, looking for the big five trees, not just for the big five animals. I agree. I, I think that would be lovely. And, I mean, even just to have a walk, if, if you don't want to put plaques on everything, but to have a walk with a guide to, mm. to kind of unpack the mysteries of the trees. Yeah, even up at uh, Mabula the one time, the guy's like, oh, they use this when they haven't got a toothbrush, but it makes your tongue numb. I'm sitting there thinking, well, fantastic. You, know, you chew the leaf of this tree and all of a sudden your mouth is just like, what, what's going on? But it, does, it freshens your mouth up. So all the trees you can use for different things. Absolutely. However, unless I was an absolute expert, I definitely wouldn't tell people because you might end up poisoning them. Okay, so if anybody wants to get hold of any of these books, Game Ranger in Your Backpack, 100 Bushveld Trees, where would they get them from? Any of the leading outlets um, supply them, so exclusive books or estoral books or online from Take A Lot or directly from the publishers. I think they've all got sort of online booking sites. There's also a, a nice online site called Adventures With Nature mm-hmm. and they sell all the natural history titles and, and he keeps all my my titles as well. So, yeah, or just Google it. Okay, and, and the talks, um, Strake, I know they, I think they've stopped for the year for now with the Nature Club talks. But uh, are you, have you got any plan for next year online? Um, I don't at this point, but uh, yeah, anything can happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope we're going to see a lot of those in the future. Well, thanks for coming in and joining us for this. Um, I mean, I'm just, I'm always so happy to talk about trees to anybody who'll listen. Um, you know, always think about that, was it Barbara Streisand? I talk to the trees, but they don't listen to me. I think they do. I really have no doubt whatsoever that they do. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and do go out and get this book, as I said, 100 Bushveld Trees. By Megan Parker, Megan Emmett Parker. It's just absolutely lovely. And for anybody who you know who is a bush aficionado, who likes being out in nature, wonderful, wonderful Christmas present. Absolutely. Spoil somebody with the privilege of being able to learn their trees. And thank you for joining us. Of course, uh, you can catch us again. Get out into the garden. Get out into the natural world. Take it easy. Enjoy nature. And above all, stay grounded. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another episode of Grounded from Solid Gold Studios in Johannesburg. For more green ideas and events, pop along to Mel's Treasures on Facebook. <laughs>